Yes. So I had to wait for my razor to charge. I use an electric massager, you know. It doesn't do much, but it uh, takes off yesterday's growth. And then um, my, my cell phone, for the first time in its existence, said 835 all morning. And I showed somebody here. Didn't I show you? And I opened it and shut it, and it's now 916. Now explain that to me. I don't know what happened there. I think somebody sold me a bill of goods. Well, there are a couple things I wanted to look at just real quickly in chapter 3, and then I want to go on to chapter 4 and talk about some pretty amazing things uh, in the text of chapter 4. There is a description at the end of chapter 3 of the women of Israel. And when I took a course 40 years ago, uh, under a, uh, a great scholar named John Rawls, who uh, worked in 24 languages and spoke 12 of them. An amazing, amazing guy. He studied all his life. He's also a, had played before the crowned heads of Europe. He played uh, piano and organ, just an, an amazing. Had an organ in his house that would blow this the roof off this place. Had an amazing uh, electric motor that big and everything. It was just a really unique human being. And uh, one of the things he asked us to do for this class was look for, look for things in magazines or wherever you happen to be reading that show this kind of thing that's here at the end of this chapter. Uh, verse 16. Yahweh says, the women of Zion, Zion probably is a reference to Jerusalem. Uh, it's also called Mount Zion, or the daughter of Zion. Uh, the women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord Adonai will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion, and Yahweh will make their scalps bald. Uh, you know, I thought of a, a runway with uh, the models and, uh, you know, Victoria's got no secret at all. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, this haughty, uh, outstretched necks flirting with their eyes. That's going on all the time. And... Uh, but it says that God will strike these women with sores and baldness on their heads. And then he says, in that day, Adonai will, stretch away their, will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and the ankle chains and the sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, which is big today, and fine uh, robes and capes and cloaks and purses, the mirrors and the linen garments and tiaras and shawls. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. 
instead of clothing, sackcloth, instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn, destitute. She will sit on the ground. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, we will eat our own food and provide our own clothes. Just let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. There's several things in this. Uh, one is that instead of a fragrance, there will be a stench. When the Babylonians took over Jerusalem, the third time when they came, they breached the walls. They came because the Jews kept rebelling against the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. The first time he came was 597 B.C. And uh, he came and uh, breached the walls and conquered the city and took the good people out. Yes, Daniel uh, was taken, uh, Ezekiel was taken, and many of the best people, the noble people of Jerusalem. And then later, uh, he came back a second time because uh, the people had rebelled. Uh, Zedekiah, the last king, uh, was a vassal king and refused to pay tribute to Babylon, took the advice of his uh, cabinet. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar came the second time, and he took Zedekiah's family outside the walls and he made each person in the family stand up before Zedekiah, and then he killed them. And then he took Zedekiah and gouged out his eyes. And he took Zedekiah away to Babylon. And he put Gedaliah, a governor, in charge. I don't know if you've read uh, all the way through Jeremiah. Jeremiah's prophecy is all mixed up. Somebody just collected it and put it together in a book. Uh, it's not uh, in order at all. But you can read through it and get all the details of what happened. And when Gedaliah was, was established as governor, Nebuchadnezzar went away again, uh, doing more conquering. He conquered Egypt and other places. Jeremiah describes the conquering of Egypt as a shepherd getting up in the morning and folding his wallet. That's how hard it was for Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Egypt. Not a problem at all. And while he was in Egypt, he discovered that some rebels had come to Jeremiah, a guy named Ishmael and some others, and said to Jeremiah, we want to we assassinate Gedaliah. What do you think? See, the Jews were still in rebellion against Babylonian dominance. And Jeremiah said, if you assassinate him, Nebuchadnezzar will come here and kill you. But if you submit to him, Nebuchadnezzar will allow you to live. At least you'll have your lives. The men said, we don't believe you. And so they went and assassinated Gedaliah. And uh, then when they heard Jer uh, Nebuchadnezzar was coming again in anger with his army, they went to Jeremiah and said, what should we do? We, you know, we were thinking about going to Egypt. And Jeremiah said, no, if you go to Egypt, he'll find you down there and kill you. But if you stay here and surrender, he'll at least give you your lives. And they said, we don't believe you. And so they grabbed Jeremiah and forced him to go with them to Egypt. When they got down there, they started worshiping an idol. And uh, Jeremiah preached against the idol. This is in rabbinic sources, not in the book of Jeremiah. 
he preached against the idolatry, and they stoned him to death right there in Egypt. Now, I don't know if you've read Jeremiah's life, but it's 50 years of preaching and 50 years of witnessing for God and not one convert. He was faithful, which is what we're called to be. Uh, and so Jeremiah dies. His life kind of ends with a sob in Egypt. When Nebuchadnezzar comes this time, these men have fled to Egypt. And so he leaves a contingent of his army at Jerusalem and it captures all the people. The army rapes all the women, strips them naked, shaves off their hair, ropes them together. When Isaiah says here, uh, instead of uh, sackcloth, instead of a fine clothing, sackcloth, instead of beauty, branding, instead of a sash, a rope. He's talking literally. And these women, after they were abused and shaved, were roped together naked and forced to march all the way to Babylon a thousand miles. The ones that died on the way were just left strewn along the road. The rest of them went on. The men and women who were remaining, most of the men were gone because they'd been in the army. And Nebuchadnezzar himself went down to Egypt and caught those men who had killed his governor, tied them to posts, and flayed them alive. Cut them right down the middle, pulled their skin off them while they were still alive, and then finally killed them. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was so angry that he had the people of his other, <coughs> the army he had left behind at Jerusalem, I think I mentioned this yesterday, uh, take teams of oxen and hook them up to big heavy plows and plow up the streets. And he plowed everything that was of the city of Jerusalem into oblivion and sent it all down into the, there was a deep valley all the way around Jerusalem called Geben Hinnom, later on known as Gehenna, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, very deep declivity where they threw all their trash, uh, where they, uh, there were fires burning out there all the time. And also the Kidron Valley is down in there uh, around another mountain. And so they threw all these stones and everything down in the valleys. And if you know anything about um, the way land works, you know that mountains always tend to settle and valleys always tend to rise up. And so over the years, Jerusalem's great mountains have come down. They were pretty good-sized mountains. Uh, the Temple Mountain was uh, the most glorious. And uh, there's a book written about that. Uh, you could see the temple from miles away because of its height and because it was made of gold and ivory by Solomon. Uh, an amazing, amazing thing to come up and see that for the miles. And they had what they called the Songs of Ascent. You can read about them in the Psalms where they climbed the mountain and sang these songs on the way up to come to the temple. And they had to appear before God at least once a year. Okay, so that's a prediction of the Babylonian destruction. Now, that doesn't come for a long time. Um, he starts prophesying about 720, prophesies down to about 680 or 670. I'll just put 680 here. Uh, Isaiah is put inside a hollow log, and the log is sawed in two uh, under uh, Manasseh the king. Manasseh reigned 52 years, was evil for 50 years, repented, 
and changed at the end of his life in the last two years, and God forgave him all the stuff he did, including sawing. They, they literally put him inside the hollow log and then sawed the log in half from end to end. So I guess you could say Isaiah was beside himself. But, yeah. but he's the one that's mentioned back in uh, Hebrews 11, being sawed in two. And then this next section, which I really want to spend a little time on. A prediction of a day. And this prediction is made throughout not just Isaiah, but several other prophets. Verse 2, he says, and this is where the division should have been made for the chapter. This should be verse 1. In that day, the branch of Yahweh, now the Hebrew text says, will be for beauty and for glory, and the fruit of the land will be for the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. This idea of survivors it means a remnant that there are some who will remain who will continue to believe. Most of the people don't believe. I mean, you can read the Old Testament. You already know this, that most Jews didn't believe. Uh, most of them turned away. Most of them rejected what God had for them. Uh, they spurned his word. They refused to listen. But some of them believed. And the ones that was believed are called survivors or remnant. And there is a whole theology of remnant uh, in the Old Testament, those few who believe. It's like if you make, a, say, a, a quilt for a bed, and at the end you have a few pieces of cloth left. That's the remnant. Uh, there's a place in uh, Ezekiel where God tells Ezekiel, I want you to cut off all your hair and your beard and I want you to take your hair and divide it. And, of course, you know, most of these guys had really long hair back then and long beard. The word for elder in Israel meant bearded. And uh, they never shaved. You know, the old men just never shaved, and they get long, long hair. He said, I want you to cut off your hair, the hair of your face, the hair of your head. And I want you to put it in three piles. And I want you to take a pinch of it and put it in your wallet. And you take your sword and hack up the first pile. You take a lucifer match. They didn't have those back then. But you light on fire the second pile and it burns up. The third pile I want you to scrape together and pick up and throw it to the wind. And he says those, that's an image of what's happening. And remember Ezekiel was prophesying in Babylon, in captivity to the slaves of the Jews in Babylon. And he says, that's what's happening in Jerusalem. A third of the people are being killed by the sword. A third of the people are being burned in the fire. And a third of the people are being scattered to the nations. And they said, well, what's the pinch that you put inside your wallet? He said, that's the remnant of those who are saved, those who believe. See, there's always a remnant, always a small number that actually believe. Martin Luther used to talk about the church, the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is everybody that shows up on Sunday morning. The invisible church are those who actually belong to God. And God knows those who are his. One of the things that Paul says in the 
2 Timothy 2.19 is that God knows those who are his. And those who are his depart from iniquity. You know, if you belong to God, you're sinning less and confessing more. That's the seal of God. You can know for sure that you belong to God by, stop, by overcoming your sin. We are called overcomers throughout Scripture. And that's how we win. So in that day, the branch of Yahweh will be for beauty and for glory. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem. You see all these images he's using for the remnant? Survivors. Those who are left. Those who remain. Will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Now, he's not talking about earthly Jerusalem. He's talking about something glorious here. He's talking about a heavenly Jerusalem. Are we called holy in the New Testament? Every time you see the word to the saints in Ephesus, saints, that's hagioi, that's the word holy ones. So yes, we're called holy. The ones who are true believers, who are left over, who remain, are called holy. So, let me go back up to the word branch, the branch of Yahweh. Did you notice it's capitalized? Have any of you done a study on that word? Really fascinating. We're going to look at some other uses of it. 4.2 in Isaiah, 6.13 11, 1, and 10, and 53, 2 in Isaiah. Then in Jeremiah, it's 23, 5, and 33, 15, where it talks about the branch. This is branch here is a name for the Messiah. And all the Targums, which are the Aramaic commentaries on the Old Testament written by the Jews, say this is King Messiah. That's why they capitalize the word branch there. And we're going to talk about this more today. I may talk about it in Sunday school tomorrow. And then Zechariah also. Uh, Zechariah 3.6. And I think it's 6.12, but I'm not sure. You can, you can look that one up. We'll look at these in just a minute. But here's what he says here. This is the first mention of the branch in all Scripture. The branch of Yahweh will be for beauty and for glory. So there's two images here of the branch. Beauty and glory. Now, glory is, is a, an interesting word. It, it, the, Greek, the Hebrew word actually means heavy. When God shows up, it, it just kind of crushes people to their knees. Um... God is the weight of glory. C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, did a series of uh, lectures on the radio, and it was put into a book, and the book is called The Weight of Glory. And that's God's tremendous presence and the weight that people feel. You know, people don't stand up in God's presence usually. Uh, they usually fall down on their faces or fall on their knees. And so this is a branch of Yahweh. Now let's look at Isaiah 6, the next use of the word. Isaiah 6.16, or the next reference. It's really not the use of the word branch. The last verse, 
of Isaiah 6, and I'm going to speak on Isaiah 6 Sunday morning. The last verse says, verse 13, and through it, though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. In other words, those there's just a very few people remaining. Babylon will come back and destroy it again. It'll be laid waste again. And then he says, as a terebinth, terebinth is a, a, a Canaanite word for those giant oak trees that they worshipped under. And so he's talking about the same thing here twice. He says, as a terebinth or an oak leaves stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So when you cut this, this tree, the tree of Israel, down, what's left will be the holy seed. So again, we're going to talk about a branch here. Okay. Then you go over to the next one, chapter 11, verse 10, uh, verse 1, rather. And I'm, I'm not going to go into this in detail. I just want you to see this. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Uh, what's the stump of Jesse? Who's Jesse? Yeah, David's father. All the rabbis, and again, all the Targums say, the, the, the commentaries from the Jews on this passage say, King Messiah. This is King Messiah. This twig that comes out of the stump of Jesse, a branch that bears fruit out of its roots, out of uh, Jesse's roots. And so here is a twig or, or something growing out of the Davidic line. He's talking about the flesh side of Jesus. That Jesus' flesh actually came, proceeded from David. You remember this, right? The genealogy of Matthew has David as one of the main people in that genealogy. That Jesus' human life came out of David. And so in the, in the book of Revelation, he's called the root of David over and over. And then if you read on in chapter 11, down at verse 10, you'll see another image for it. He says, As my hand seized the kingdoms of, of the idols, oh, I'm sorry, I'm the wrong, chapter 11, verse 10. That wasn't right. In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people's. The Gentiles, the, the pigs and dogs, uh, the nations, will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glory. There's that word again. It's a noun in the text. His place of rest will be glory, and the nations will rally to him. So he's the, he's the twig that comes out of the stump and bears fruit, and he's also the root. And we're going to talk about that more later on. The root of Jesse, so he's the, the twig and the root, both. And then let's go on to uh, Isaiah 53, 2, where uh, this is just a quick rundown of the passages where the, where the branch image is used. Isaiah 53, 2 says, speaking of Jesus, how many of you know about Isaiah 53? 
You know, Isaiah 53 has been, have been taken out of the prayer books of the Jews because when people read it, they think about Jesus. And the Jewish prayer books have removed Isaiah 53 because it's too threatening to leave it in there. The way the, the rabbis interpret Isaiah 53 is that this is talking about Israel. And it's person, uh, personifying Israel. But Isaiah 53 describes the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you look closely, look at verse 8 through 10. And then I'll come back to verse 2. Verse 8 through 10 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. This is Jesus. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. He died, stricken for the transgression of my people. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. I mean, he died between two thieves. And with the rich in his death, he was buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Those two lines right there are why this cannot be Israel. Because Israel had done violence, and Israel's mouths were full of deceit. In chapter 28, Isaiah says, This people draws near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Deceitful. Then he says, Yet it was the Lord's will, Yahweh's will, to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though Yahweh makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. At the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So in other words, death, death among the wicked, cut off out of the land of the living, buried with the rich, and then raised from the dead. So this is a powerful passage to, to point to Jesus. Now if you go back to Isaiah 53, 2, he's talking about Jesus, how he, how he was born. And look what he says about him. First of all, Isaiah 53, 1. The Hebrew text says here, who would have believed what we have heard? Isaiah, it appears, is in shock thinking about this. Who would have believed what we prophets have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, you don't expect the arm of the Lord to be revealed to the Gentiles. You'd think he'd be revealed to the Jews. But the Gentiles were the ones that sought him out. The Jews had every reason to. They had the whole history leading up to him. He came from the Jews. You know, I think the church today forgets that Jesus is, is a Jew. He had four locks. He had hair down to his collar. He didn't have long hair. They didn't do that in his day. But he had four locks. He had a beard. You want to see what Jesus looks like? Go to your internet and look up the Shroud of Turin. I've done a lot of study on that. I thought it was a hoax when it first came out but I've done a lot of study. I mentioned it to a priest friend of mine. You, know, you Catholics always have to have, I was going to a Catholic university and they were talking about the shroud and I said, you Catholics always have to have your, uh, your trophies. And he said, have you read anything on the shroud? I said, no. He gave me a list of 14 articles to read in, in magazines and journals. 
and he gave me two books to read. And I read them. And I've come to the conclusion, for me, that the Shroud of Turin was put around Jesus of Nazareth. Now, they don't have a scientific test for Jesus of Nazareth. But if you want to see what he looked like, you can look in that shroud. There's a, a, online, you can look at a computer-enhanced picture. He's got four locks. One eye is swollen shut. Remember the soldiers punched him and said, who, you know, who hit you, prophet? Prophesy, he was blindfolded. So there's no way he could protect himself against being hit. Uh, the man in the shroud has blood all around the top of his head, all the way down his back. Uh, he's been beaten. Uh, the man in the shroud is just under six feet tall, slender, broad-shouldered. It's an amazing thing. And if it had been a medieval forgery, the way some people claim, the marks of the nails would not have been in the wrists. To the Jewish doctors, to the Greek doctors, this whole area here is the hand because all the muscles of the hand are up in the wrist. And so the nails go through here. If it had been a medieval forgery, like all the art shows him with nail prints here, but if you had your nails here, the weight of the body would just rip that right out. It has to go through between the bones of the wrist. Um, I, I believe it's a shroud of Jesus. And if you want to see what he looks like, you can look in that shroud. He looks like a first century Hasidic Jew. If any of you have been to New York, you've seen the Hasidic Jews. They still wear the forelocks. They still have the beard. And they're as Jewish as Jewish can be. They look Jewish. Some of them put their forelocks behind their ears to keep them out of, their, out of the way when they're studying. But uh, they still have them. So... Isaiah says, who would have believed what we've heard? You know, who would have believed this? That he's going to suffer and die. That the king of kings, that the Messiah, the Jews expected a Messiah to come and rule the world, cast out the Romans, dominate the world. That's what they looked for. That's why they missed him. But he came as a suffering servant described here in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Verse 2. He grew up before him as a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So you don't expect that. The prophets were thinking, like Daniel sees him riding on the clouds and coming up to the Ancient of Days. What Daniel's seeing is the ascension of Jesus after all that. But what Isaiah sees here is the suffering servant. And so this branch image with all the beauty and glory attached to it still has suffering attached to it also. Talk about coming up like a shoot out of dry ground. Where did he come from? Born in Bethlehem? Ever been to Bethlehem? It's nothing. It means fruitful field. Bethlehem means house of bread. And it was called Bethlehem Ephrathah, the house of bread in a fruitful field. There's nothing there. Today, there's a little town there. 
and it's right next to Jerusalem. And it's where they used to keep the lambs for the sacrifices. And I love the fact that the name of the city is House of Bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he's born there. How did he happen to be born in Bethlehem? God moved the whole world to get Jesus born in Bethlehem. Mary was so pregnant, she would have never made that trip if he hadn't put out a decree that the whole world had to be taxed and everybody had to go back to their hometown. I'd go back to Murfreesboro, Illinois, if I had to go back to my hometown. Maybe some of you would go back to even worse places. I don't know. But I'm telling you, it was an incredible miracle that, that he was born in Bethlehem. And who tells about Bethlehem? Isaiah's protege. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, says, Blessed are you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, for out of you will come forth for me one who is to be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from the days of eternity, it says in that passage. He comes from eternity to be born in Bethlehem. And then he goes to Egypt. Only Matthew tells us that family takes him down there to escape the massacre of the innocents. And then he comes back with his family, and he's going to come back to, to Bethlehem, but King Herod's brother is reigning in his place, and so the angel warns Joseph, go, go north. And they go to Nazareth. You want to hear something interesting? The last verse in Matthew 2 says, as it says in the prophets, quotation, he shall be called a Nazarene. And I looked for that and looked for that and looked for that. And I never found it in the prophets. Until one day I was studying Hebrew and I was translating the 11th chapter of Isaiah where it says a twig comes out of the stump of Jesse. That word twig is the Hebrew word natser the root word for Nazareth. See, it's an amazing thing. He'll be called Emmanuel. Isaiah tells us that. And he will be from Nazareth. Yeah, Bethlehem is a place for the sacrificial lambs. They'd keep them there, and whenever they had to offer sacrifice, they'd come through Bethlehem, pick up a lamb, buy it, you know, and go on to Jerusalem. Offer sacrifice. Yes. Isaiah 11, 1. Oh, you're talking about, uh, yeah, the last verse of Matthew, chapter 2. Yeah, he shall be called a Nazarene, and you, you wouldn't know that, reading the English Bible, but it happens that that word is the root word, the word twig. Hmm? Excuse me? Uh, branch or twig out of uh, Isaiah 11.1, 1, the first one, the first line. A shoot, it says here in the NIV, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So the word shoot is the word Nazar, the root word for Nazareth. So, you know, even though he's just kind of making this up, Matthew, it's in the prophets, 
You have to look to find it. You have to look in the right spot, and you have to look at the Hebrew text. Uh, Matthew was written by a bunch of Greek-speaking Jews who took Matthew's notes and went up to Syria and wrote them down. And uh, all the quotations in Matthew, Matthew is written originally to the Jews, probably preached to the Jews in Jerusalem, where Matthew spent his whole life. He was stoned to death there. But his followers took his notes. He knew how to do tachigraphy, they called it back then. We call it shorthand. Uh, quick writing is what the Greek word means. And uh, as a tax collector, he would know how to do that. He was a head tax collector, wealthy man. So he knew how to do that. And so he kept notes on Jesus' you know, messages. That's why we have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. None of the other Gospels have that. You know, he collects all his sayings into major sections in Matthew. Matthew's built on five sections. Actions and teaching, action and teaching, action and teaching, five times. Um, trying to copy the law, the five books of Moses. Yes? He probably, he probably went back to a home belonging to his parents. Uh, Joseph, Joseph was a cabinet maker. You know, it's always translated carpenter, but the Greek word is architecton. It's our word architect. Uh, he was a designer and builder of cabinets, which is a very technical job. And uh, how did they live in Egypt? Well, you know, if we didn't have Matthew, we wouldn't know that uh, wise men came and gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh, expensive things, so that the family could live in Egypt on those things. And then when he does come back to Nazareth, he probably went back into an apartment of his parents' home. Uh, if his parents were still alive, it wouldn't matter, because once you own property, it's permanent. God gives property to the people. Yeah, he started to. Probably because that's where the baby was born and they had had a house there. Uh, when the wise men got there, they didn't come to the... I mean, you know, uh, I get a kick out of the... Uh, yeah, the, what do they call them? The uh, nativity scenes? You know, what a, you know what a lawyer nativity scene is? A bunch of lawyers kneeling around an accident victim. But, but anyway... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the wise men, when they came, they got there later. It took them quite a while because they came from Persia, and that's a long journey. Uh, go into this in more detail. Jesus was born in 5 B.C., and the only way we know that is from Chinese records. And the Chinese kept records of uh, celestial events, and they say that between 20 B.C. and 10 A.D., there's only one major celestial event, and that is a comet. And the Chinese followed that comet across the sky, and as it went, its tail kept going higher and higher. And they followed it for 70 days, and then the wise men would have seen him, seen the comet, and they would have followed it. How did they know that there would be a king at the end of it? 
How did they know that the star meant a king was born? Hmm? Well, possibly. I think it's from, see, since they were from Babylon, you know, I mean, you all know that uh, uh, Iraq is where Abraham lived when God called him and all his families from there. And Balaam, the prophet who was corrected by a donkey, remember him, if you're corrected by a jackass, there's something wrong with you, you know. <laughs> and uh, you're worse than one. But anyway, he, uh, he got corrected by a donkey. He came from Babylon, and in his fourth oracle, four means universal. In the fourth oracle, he says, a star will rise up out of Jacob, and the ruler's staff will be beneath his feet. And so what he's predicting there is the star that came across China and then came on across. Uh, the, the Persians saw it. The wise men came. We don't know how many there were. We've got a tradition of three, but there are traditions of four and 12. And there are 12 different Persian cities that claim the wise men came from there. So there are traditions behind all this. But these men came following that star, and by the time they got to where the star was, it was like a finger, the comet tail sticking straight up in the air, pointing down to where he was. And that's why they asked Herod, because Jerusalem is two miles from Bethlehem. It's right here. We, followed, we saw it in the east, and we followed it. Where's the king? And Herod was, of course, not happy about that. He says, find him and tell me so I can come back and worship him too. He wanted to kill him. Uh, he'd already killed his brother and kicked one of his wives to death and a bunch of stuff like that. Just a real messed up person. Uh, amazing story. And the only celestial event between 20 B.C. And, five, uh, and 10 A.D. is that comet. And it's in 5 B.C. And that fits perfectly with what Luke says in the, in the uh, Gospel of Luke. He says it was during the reign of Quirinius, governor of Syria. Quirinius was governor of Syria from 6 to 4 B.C., the first time. Later on, he was governor again, uh, 14 to 16 A.D. But here he is, right between 6 and 4 is when Jesus has to be born. So the calendar's off five years. So this is the year 2014, but it'll never be changed because it's tradition. You can't change tradition. Tradition. <laughs> uh, but I get a charge out of this that these guys knew and came, and by the time they got there, Jesus and his family had moved into a, a house, a rented house. And that may be where they were going to go back to uh, to see if they could find a place there. But uh, God warned them in a dream. Joseph had four dreams. The first one was, you need to marry her. The second one was, get out of Dodge. The third one is time to come back. And the fourth one is don't go there, go there. Amazing. Four visions or dreams that God gave Joseph. And then Joseph disappears out of the story after, uh, after Jesus is 12 years old. And he makes the trip. Only Luke tells us that. When he makes the trip with his parents and ends up in the temple. And they look for him for three days and find him. Okay, and then Jeremiah, any comments on that or questions? Just 
just let me know and we'll talk about it. This passage right here in Jeremiah uh, 23.5 and 33.15 say exactly the same thing. His name will be called, the branch of Yahweh will come forth and his name will be called Yahweh Tzidkenu. The Lord is our righteousness. Hey, if the Lord wasn't our righteousness, we would be hellbound. But the Lord is our righteousness, is his name. He's called Yahweh Tzidkenu. My favorite names for the branch in the Old Testament. And then Zechariah, let's go there. Zechariah 3, 6, I think it is. See, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It's almost the last of the Old Testament. Zechariah. And Zechariah is apocalyptic. Excuse me? Oh, yeah, I'm not going to raise it. Uh, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic means out of hiding. It means it's hidden. And so it's symbolic literature. It's like the book of Revelation. Now, Zechariah came back from Babylonian captivity. When you are like John, when he wrote Revelation, was out on the island of Patmos. He was exiled by the Romans. And so when you are under pressure from a foreign power, that's when this kind of literature comes out. And Zechariah is apocalyptic. So is Daniel. If you've read Daniel, uh, you know it's all symbols and images. Uh, four great beasts coming up out of the sea. Uh, the dream of a, of a statue with a gold head and so on. Much of it is symbolic. There is some history in there too. So apocalyptic or symbolic literature and in Zechariah 3, um, let's start with verse, boy, I can't read anymore. Verse 3. Now, Joshua, you know, the first thing you've got to learn here is that this guy is the high priest. Joshua is his name. If you put that in Greek, it would be Jesus. And if you put it in English, it would be Jesus. So Yeshua, Zechariah actually gives a branch a name. The name is Yeshua, Jesus. Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel, symbolic of Jesus carrying all our sins on the cross. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, Behold, I have taken away your sin. I will put rich garments on you. Then he said, put a, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of Yahweh gave this charge to Joshua. This is what Yahweh Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic, there it is, of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. 
Behold the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that stone. What has seven eyes? Read Revelation, you'll discover the Lamb has seven eyes. And the seven eyes of the Lamb are the seven spirits of God that go out into all the earth. It's a picture, a symbol. And it talks about Jesus, and it talks about the seven eyes, and it talks about the seven spirits of God. Seven spirits of God are first mentioned in Isaiah 11, and we'll talk about that after a while. So we got his name, we got the seven eyes, we got the, the, the filthy rags being taken off and the clean clothing being put on, symbolic of the sins of the world being taken off, taken away. In the New Testament, that would be a symbol of baptism, where you take off your old clothes after you've been dunked in the water and you put on new clothes, clean clothes. Very symbolic, very amazing. And notice what he says at the end of verse 9. I will remove the sin, and this can be translated this way, I will remove the sin of this earth in a single day on the cross. You realize that when Jesus died on the cross, John the Baptist was a true prophet, and John said he takes away the sin of the world. That means everybody's forgiven. That's the message. That's why the message is so big. I don't hear preachers saying that everybody's forgiven. You need to go tell your neighbors you've been forgiven. Someone died for you. Paul says uh, when he writes 2 Corinthians 5, he says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. See, this is, the message is incredible. It's not bad news, it's good news. It's not, you're going to hell if you don't do this or that. It's, you've been saved, you've been forgiven. The word herald in the New Testament. There you go. <laughs> Spelled a little bit different, but basically the same. A herald is a, a, a spokesman for a king who takes the scroll out and says, Hear ye, hear ye, the king has declared all your debts are paid. Man, oh man, that's what the New Testament teaches. You're forgiven. 1 John chapter 2, we quoted last night, verse 1 and 2. I write these things to you, little children, that you may not sin at all. But if anyone should sin... John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the forgiveness for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he took away the world's sin. Does this mean everybody's saved? No. It's not the same. When God forgives everybody in the world, that means everybody's forgiven. The question is, what are you going to do with that? Will you accept that? And if I put a million dollars in your bank account and you never use it, what good's it? This tells me that people in Africa or Asia or someplace who've never heard the message of Jesus and never heard his name, 
They've been forgiven. And God knows those people. He knows the ones that are his. He knows who believes and who doesn't. He knows who has the disposition of heart to believe and who has the disposition of heart to disbelieve. One of the first questions, one of my best friends at school is a guy named Stu Schlockman. He's a Jew from New York. And Stu took me out to eat one time at a really nice restaurant. And I didn't know why he wanted to do that because I just met him. And after we'd eaten, he said, Mark, my mom grew up in New York Jewry. She never heard the name of Jesus except in cussing. The first time I heard the message of Jesus, I believed it. My mom is just like me. My mom died without ever hearing the name. Where is my mom? And I said, God knows what might have been. God knows the hearts of people who would accept it if they heard it. Paul talks about this in Romans 2. There's hope for people who, who haven't even heard the gospel because God knows their hearts and he knows the ones who would receive it if they heard it. And it's so much better if you have the gospel because you know your sins are forgiven. But sadly, people in the world still don't know. People in America still don't know they've been forgiven. Most people in America think I'm probably going to hell. Probably doesn't matter what I do. I've already blown my life so bad, nobody could save me. And what they need to hear is the message, God's forgiven you. You are forgiven. That could be. Yeah, you get the picture when you hear these Hollywood people, you think that everybody's going to heaven. Or a ghost whisperer. You know, the light comes and everybody goes into the light. Well, how many of you saw the movie Ghost with Patrick Swayze? That gets your attention. When somebody bad dies, wow. I recommend that movie to a lot of people. Clark Rocca, a friend of mine, had gotten out of church, and he saw that movie, and it scared him back into church. <laughs> Uh, we know, and you're right, I think a lot of people think, well, everybody goes to heaven, but I'm sorry, that's not the way it goes. Hmm? Yeah, all dogs. Yeah, cats go to hell, but dogs go to heaven. And cats are so stupid, if they went to hell, they wouldn't know it. Anyway, uh... uh Cats and I never got along. <laughs> For you cat people, I love you anyway. You can be forgiven. <laughs> okay, chapter 6. And by the way, uh, you've heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. Zechariah talks about them twice in his first vision and in his eighth vision. And so John just gets that out of the book of Zechariah, but he expands on it, and God reveals a lot more about it. Um, I'm ready. Can we finish just this one? Uh, chapter 6. 
this is still Zechariah. I just, I'm finishing up on the branch. The word of Yahweh came to me, take silver and gold from the exiles, and he, he names the people who have uh, arrived in Babylon, go the same day to the house of uh, Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, take silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Jehozadak means God is, or the Lord is righteous. And so the silver and gold point to the fact that the high priest, whose name is Yeshua, will also be the king. And that's revealed right here. And he says, here is the man, in the next verse, here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of Yahweh. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What was he talking about? His body. Folks, get this. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of God. We're told that throughout the New Testament. It is he who will build the temple of Yahweh. And he will be clothed with majesty. And will sit and rule on the throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. So he's both a king and a priest. And there will be harmony between the two. There it is. The ruler 